This is Catalog and Cocktails. Hello, everyone. It's Catalog and Cocktails time. It's an honest, no BS, non-salesy conversation about enterprise data management with tasty beverages in hand. I'm Tim Gasper, longtime data nerd and product guy at Data.World, joined by Juan. Hey, Juan. Hey, I'm Juan Cicada. I'm the principal scientist here at Data.World. And Wednesday, middle of the week, end of the day, and it's always awesome that we get the chance to have this conversation uh, that data.world actually lets us spend our day to go uh, chat about data, have a drink in the middle of the week. And uh, today we have an awesome guest. This is somebody whose name has been in the industry for a long time, who has made so many changes, who has shaked up the industry. This is Andy Palmer, who is the co-founder and CEO of Tamer. Formerly, he was the CEO of Vertica uh, that revolutionized the data warehouse. I mean, he's he's an ex-trilogy guy. I mean, Andy is somebody who's just seen so much and has been around and 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 know what's going on. Andy, it is a pleasure to have you here on Catalog and Cocktails. Thank you so much for being here. Cheers. Great to see you guys. Fantastic to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So, so excited to have you. So let's kick it off on what are we drinking and what are we toasting for? Andy, you go first. You bet. I'm drinking Nika coffee, Japanese whiskey, um, which I love. It's very smooth. And, uh, you know, I, I'm toasting uh, Boston's new uh, mayor, first woman mayor in Boston, Michelle Wu. That is awesome. That is so cool. I, I actually saw her tweet that she's like, uh, here's finally my business card arrived. Like, that was so cool to go see that. She's, hey, she's okay. a rock star. Yeah, she's How about awesome. you? How about you, Tim? I am currently drinking a maple old rye old fashioned, which is actually a repeat. It's the first time me doing a repeat on a cocktail. But the reason why <laughs> I'm doing that is because uh, actually uh, our product management intern, Nancy Prabhakar, brought some uh, Canadian maple syrup down. She says it's the best maple syrup in all of Canada. So I was like, all right, I'm going to do a repeat cocktail and I'm going to leverage this. So. Um, that's what's going into this. And uh, I'll cheers to that as well. Very excited to have a, a female mayor over there. Well, and I'm, uh, I always make my cocktail kind of last minute went down and I'm like, I got some, I got some tonic, but I can't do a gin not to be too boring. So I'm having a, a rum and tonic with some oranges in it. Even though every time I hear the name Andy Palmer, I always think Arnold Palmer. And I really wanted to make an Arnold Palmer drink, but <laughs> didn't have lemonade and the iced tea. But this is this is great. So, hey, cheers to, to the new uh, mayor of Boston. This is great. Cheers. 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 Thanks, guys. So we got our, our, our warm-up question today, which is, uh, what was a big purchase you made that you almost immediately regret it. Yeah, you know, it's a weird one too, because there was a long lead up. I, so uh, I just finished redoing my kitchen and my apartment in Cambridge in Harvard Square. And, uh, you know, I, I really, I got caught up in the process and the people involved and I was really excited. And almost immediately after we were done, you know, it sort of hit me like, I literally don't cook. I go out for every single meal. And so I'm like, why did I just redo this kitchen? Like, who? nobody's ever going to use this stove. Like, <laughs> what's the point? It's crazy. But you can get caught up in it, right? This home reno stuff is crazy. Yeah, you get yeah. invested and uh, it probably looks great now though, right? Oh, it's fantastic. It looks great. Yeah, but, you know, I just you know, dropped my bag off there when I go to on my, on my way to bed after dinner. Yeah. <laughs> well, you can have invite dinner parties after other people go cook for you then. Mm. <laughs> There we go. Exactly. There you go. That's an investment. You got to think about it that way, right? <laughs> right. How about you, Tim? Do you have one? 
That's a good question. You know, uh, maybe when I bought my solar panels, because that was a pretty big purchase. And I was like, and then right after I bought them, I was like, oh, man, it's such a long, long ROI period. And, you know, but, you know, hey, it's green. It's, you know, putting energy back on the grid. So, you know, in the end, it works out. Yeah, I remember I bought my 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 first condo when I was in school. I was going to start my PhD. I'm like, well, if I'm going to be in school for six, seven years by the so it was a big purchase. But I had the opportunity to go buy something kind of in East down East Austin, East downtown. The realtor told me it's going to be a tough couple of years, but I didn't do that. So I regret buying the place I did now because I should have bought something else. But oh, well, we learned from this stuff. But anyway, we the question was about this big stuff because we're going to be talking about kind of monolithics and open and closed ecosystems and stuff. So let me, let's just start with the discussion and honest and no BS question is should monolithic data architectures die? Should they cease to exist or is there actually going to go be good reasons to actually have them around? Yeah. Like, you know, it's, you know, it's weird. I think about this stuff, you know, I've been a consumer of data products more times than a, a producer or a seller in my career um, in the last 30 years. And so um, I think about this from the perspective of somebody that, you know, buys software to go do cool things with data inside of big companies. And, you know, like um, none of, you know, none of the products that, you know, a vendor builds and brings to market are complete enough to do all the things that people are trying to do with data nowadays. Um, They're just sort of by definition incomplete. And so, you know, I think the thing that gets in the way for a lot of vendors is they have this hubris, you know, they have this self-pride. They think they're building the next great, amazing data thing. And God forbid they're a startup and they only have 20 or 30 million bucks, you know. Um, but the reality is like, you know, we need to do so much with our data, especially in in, in big companies that are that are data driven, that the, I think the only way you do this is by taking things that are best of breed and kind of hooking them together in well-defined clear endpoints um, so that you can, you know, take all the, all the data you can possibly get your hand on and all the data you will get your hands on over time and build test and release it into a, uh, you know, place where people can consume the clean curated data. Um, And it's kind of like, you know, like we need to think about, you know, building, testing and releasing great data the same way that, we think about using DevOps to build, test, and release software very, very quickly and uh, at a very high quality. So, you know, but I think we're in the early days of that. Um, so, so to do this kind of next-gen data, like uh, data management and, and, and infrastructure, like you have to be best of breed about it. You know, um, no, no one vendor, you know, has you know the ability to build everything that you're going to need. Um, and and sometimes you need like something that's so like in some way like so powerful and really good that um you need really a best of breed approach yeah just my opinion so is that an argument then you know against the monolith is that is that uh yeah yeah i believe in yeah i believe in open ecosystems i i really believe you know this term data ops is so popular now and i think it's really good you know for a couple of us that were involved in kind of coining that term you know eight or nine years ago and 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 that like you know, the, the cool thing about data ops is sort of a call out to DevOps, right? Which is, you know, when you go to do DevOps and modern software engineering, you don't go to one big vendor and buy DevOps, right? You you go and you, you know, use GitHub for, you know, for your, uh, you know, uh, source code control. You go to get the Atlassian suite, you go to New Relic, you go to this collection of vendors, then you assemble that stuff 
as it's you know sort of important and valuable to you in order to build test and release software. Um, should be the same thing with data, right? You don't go to one vendor to buy all the, like, you know, you go get all the different pieces. You go buy data catalog over here. You go get um, your persistence and your compute infrastructure, probably from one of the big cloud vendors. Um, you go get your pipelining tools, right? You know, and sometimes it's open source, sometimes it's private, like, for pipelining or orchestration, like somebody like I love Airflow. I think it's great. Um, you know, I use that a lot when I was you know running all the data stuff over at Novartis. So like I, you know, like I just think there's so much good tooling out there. And if you get the endpoints right, that's the hard part right, is to get the endpoints right between these things. Like you can configure things to kind of work well together and suit your needs, um, as opposed to like buying spending a bunch of money to some big vendor. Again, Palantir is my favorite sort of whipping boy for this stuff. And then, like, hope that they'll give you the things you need in order to be successful. <laughs> you know, like, like, what are the odds? Not good. Yeah. Okay. So, so, is it safe to say? I don't put your words in your mouth that the model, the monolithic, should die. Like, we should not be able. We should not have to go buy these things out. Like, they, they shouldn't exist. Yeah. I think monoliths are dead. I think they're already dead. Like, the only people that'll tell you they're working are the vendors that are trying to sell them to you, right? On the other side, like I, I don't meet many happy Palantir customers, right? You know, um, you know, they, they sort of pull, you know, some tens of millions of dollars out of every one of their customers and they deliver some software to them to do something. And usually the first team that shows up on the ground is really talented and are able to do something really good. So they kind of, you know, feel good after spending tens of millions of dollars. But then it kind of tails off after that. And they're like, wait a minute, did we get the value for the 20 million bucks we just spent on Palantir? You know, and um, we see this a lot on the data quality side of the equation, right? Where they're they're pretty good at analytics stuff. Again, that's like their 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 sweet spot. That's what their platform's really good at. But when it comes to like the data management, DQ stuff, like not so much, right? And so we get a lot of calls from Palantir companies like our data sucks, come clean it up, please. Yeah. <laughs> I I love the boldness and the honest OBS. Like monolithics are dead. Um, mm -hmm. You started saying like best of breed, uh, which by the way I fully agree with you. Like it's the best of breed of things. I, it, I, one of the concerns I have, and we, we bring this up all the time, is we're just partitioning things. There's just new categories over more and more, and everybody's creating their own category. And then you, you look <laughs> at the, the the Matt Turk uh, data landscape, and there's what, what 50, 60 buckets. So you do I need 50, 60 things and 50, 60? Like that is, yeah. we went to another extreme. So, okay, yeah. read that monolithics are not, we don't want that, but then are we cutting everything up to their extreme? Like that's bad too. Totally. And, you know, this is such a good point. So, so like back in 2003, you know, my, my partner for many years is this guy, Mike Stonebreaker. You know, a lot of us use Postgres and so much. Yeah. So quick, quick parentheses, like everybody should know who Mike Stonebreaker is, Victoria <laughs> right? He's like the father of database management systems. Uh, yeah. Be sure that we know who we're talking about here. That's right. Yeah. And so, so, you know, Mike and I, you know, we, we, um, we published a paper back in 2003 called One Size Does Not Fit All in Database Systems. And it was kind of weird because at the time, in 2003, if you were going to do something and you said, listen, I'm going to use some specialty database instead of Oracle, SQL Server, or DB2, people were like, what are you doing? Like, why would you ever use anything other than one of the big relational databases, right? And, you know, Mike and I just felt like, you know, we had kind of stagnated in terms of new design patterns in database systems because everybody sort of conceded that, you know, you know, they were going to sell their firstborn to Larry Ellison. And, um, you know, 
we just knew this was not true. And so we, we built Vertica at the time out of that. And, um, you know, the or Google team was, was, was building what became big table and big query. Um, and, uh, you know, there was like five or six different things and that were kind of emerging, but now we've got this problem. There's too many of these random database systems. Like, what do you pick? Right. Single store used to be MemSQL, which is like a column store and a row store to combine together. You know, do you use the database system in your cloud vendor of choice? Um, do you try something that's open source and cheap? You do is pick up Cassandra or HBase or, you know, like, like you said, there's too many options. But like at, at the core, like the, these things are built, right? They have some physical characteristics, right? So you, you've got things that are row stores that are, you know, really good for writes, you know, like all the traditional relational databases were like that. And then you have column stores, which are generally much better for reads, right? Yeah, they're right. They're organized so that you can get data out very efficiently. Um, you have graph databases, like which, you know, when you need to, you know, represent the data, data so they can be explored in all kinds of weird ways. Like it's very useful and good and powerful. Um, and, you know, you have uh, uh, doc stores, right? Like Mongo, right? You know, and Couch and, and these kinds of things. And, you know, and, and then maybe you've got key value stores, which one might argue are kind of a flavor of column store. But um, so like, you know, but they're, they're like, you know, less than, you know, eight like core design patterns that each one of these data systems can, can follow because like there's only so many way to ways to represent bits on disk right like i mean come on right um and so um you know mike and i we've just been around for long enough we're like well there's like these six to eight patterns and all each one of these systems falls into one of those patterns the mistake i see a lot of people making is they use whatever's hot and popular right and like there was a lot of this going on with NoSQL stuff, you know, back when data lakes were the vote. And like Mike and I came out back in 2007 and we tried we tried really hard to call bullshit on on data lakes and HDFS. We were like, these are not database systems. Like they've not been engineered. Like they were originally designed to aggregate log files in the big internet companies. And, you know, MapReduce is just like, it's not a panacea, right? It's just, you looked under the covers at what it was. You're like, no, any good solid database researcher or hardcore database systems engineer be like, yeah, that's, that's not going to work for all this stuff that they were trying it for. And so like the hardest part is getting people to understand that, look, what is their use case? What do they really care about? What are they optimizing for on any given workload? And then like, and then pick one of the things that kind of fits in the category that's physically aligned with what you're trying to do. Um, so there's like, if you've been around long enough and you've seen these patterns, it's just, it's like common sense, you know? Yeah. Uh, you start to see how these puzzle pieces can fit into the solution yeah. depending on the, the value and the use case that you're driving towards. Right. That's right. Um, That's right. And, you know, I, I think you make some really great points here. And, and just before we move on, uh, you know, just one more thing on this whole monolith topic, there does seem to be this infatuation that, you know, it, it, it ebbs and flows in terms of its trendiness and which technology it gravitates towards yeah. in terms of like, hey, it, this idea of the silver bullet that like, oh, man, if yeah. we can combine these things together into one thing, oh, then I just have to implement one thing. And you think about like, oh, because then, you know, the whole like one throat to choke kind of thing, like, oh, you know, one yeah. vendor or one technology or you right. think uh, integration, right? Integration is always a pain, right? So if yeah. you've got seven different uh, technologies that you have to integrate together, that's harder than, you know, one or two. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What do you think about that? Is it a balance well, or do you think that's yeah. overstated? No, no, it's it's a balance, right? Like you got to decide. Like you can't have like like in, again, database systems. You know, core like persistent systems is a good example, right? Because like I mean, they're they're 
dozens and dozens of options, right? Way too many for some you know, mere mortal to, to, to grok. So, um, so what do you, well, you have to sort of like, you know, sort of put these things into buckets and organize and, and then you got to decide what your endpoints are going to be, right? Like, I'm a big, I'm a big sequel guy. Like, you know, like I, I think that JSON is great and NoSQL systems helped us build out JSON. It's really useful, very important and a good complement to SQL. But like, um, you know, declarative languages kind of matter like as an endpoint, right? I, I remember we, Mike and I had a buddy who was working on the core Google uh, uh, big table team. And, you know, they didn't do SQL in the first version of, of, of big table. And we were like, well, like, how are people going to get their data out? You know, and like, well, they'll come and talk to us, you know, and if they, if they, they'll write their own code or else they'll ask us and we'll write it for them. We came back like two years later and we're like, how's it going? He's like, oh, he's like, I hate my job. And we're like, what's wrong? He's like, I have to write every query for these stupid business people and it's going to take forever. And like, I'm so sick of it. Can you get me out of here? Like, and we're like, well, you didn't put a declarative language on top of the data. Like, you know, self-abuse, man. Like, so, um, you know, so, so these endpoints I think are really important, right? Like if you get the endpoints, right, like you make your life easier and, you know, like SQL in, SQL out, kind of a good thing or JSON in, JSON out, like that's kind of a good idea in database systems. Um, but when you think about the, the broader sort of data, uh, you know, engineering ecosystem and where things, you know, begin and end, one of my favorite things about like catalogs is, is a good example, um, you know, like I like when I implemented, you know, I built like three catalogs in the last 10 years. And one of the, you know, ones when I built when I was at Novartis, like it was like we it was a really good crawler and registration system. Like so it just went through all the database tables and all the Oracle and SQL Server that we had. And then it just registered these things. So there was a place you could go and find, you know, sort of what was in with a little bit of sample data, what was in every single one of these things. Right. And it, it was really useful and good for what we were doing 10 years ago. Um, now there's much fancier things, right? Like, like you guys provide, uh, at data.world, but, but these like, you know, like having a thing, well, this is my data catalog and sort of pretending like not pretending that the data catalog does, you know, also, uh, you know, sort of doesn't make your Arnold Palmer for you, <laughs> you know, you know, when you want to like the worst, worst example would be, uh, like, uh, you know, visualization tools and analytics, right? We had a, there was a vendor that was, I won't, I won't say who it was, but um, we were uh, the, the, one of our investors, Google Ventures had invested in both them and us. And so we'd have these sessions at GV where they would in, have her in to meet with some big fortune 500 company. Um, and then, and then I would go in and give my pitch afterwards. And so I couldn't help but hear what her pitch was. And, you know, she had like a whole like data system that was hooked up to this tools out of the box. And it was like, not only directly competitive with everything we were doing, but it was competitive with all the, the visualization tools, right? It was kind of the classic, you know, single vendor, single platform kind of the thing. And I used to go in after she would present and I would be like, hey, you know, all that stuff that she just talked about. And they'd be like, yeah, like, you know, the viz stuff and then the data management stuff and the presenter, like we do like one of the five things she described and we do that really, really well. Like, and if you need that re really good thing, like, hey, like, that's cool. Like, let's let's talk. But if you are trying to solve this, like, you know, you know, sort of, or you believe and buy into that she can do it all, like, okay, go, go for it, right? And that company doesn't exist anymore. But, mm -hmm. you know, um, 
you know, like I, I, I just, you know, I, I, the reason I have this opinion about these best of breed and open ecosystems is because like I've seen the play over and over and over again, you know, and, you know, when, when I started at Novartis, you know, where, you know, my, my buddy, Rami Avard, who was the CIO at the time, he wanted me, he wanted my title to be data czar. And I was like, no, that sounds a little like bad. Like, you know, czars are probably a good thing, right? You know, let's not do that. But at the time, the IBM folks had come in and we were kind of going to try and organize all of our data at, at Novartis in the research group. And IBM had proposed like a, I was like a $150 million project to do this for, for Novartis' research group. And we looked at this thing in like eight ways till Sunday. And we're like, you know, like, I don't think there's any way they can do anything that they've said, right? And they're sort of making this promise. And because we know under the covers, like the products that they were going to use to do this, it was a collection of like 30 different things. And none of those projects, those products integrated, like the stuff that they had bought, some of which they, some they built, but it was like a collection. Of that. And we're like, it doesn't really hold together. Like some sales and marketing people had gotten together and say, hey, we're going to pitch this as one big platform. But under the covers, it was still a bunch of things that were sort of woven together. And it was like, well, if we're going to weave stuff together, like we'll just do that ourselves and we'll buy the stuff that's best in the world, not the stuff that happens to be have the IBM brand on it, you know? And so we so we killed it and then we went off and we built it ourselves. And our our thing instead of having 30 things in it, it had six or seven things in it. Yeah. So 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 this is you said something very very key here, which is we do that one thing very very well. Mm -hmm. So it makes me think like should we just just stick to your swimming lane, right? Just make be the best of that. So if that's the case, then what are those different swimming lanes or or or, or, or pillars that we should have? You were mentioning already, I'm taking notes here, right? You're talking about um my notes, where are my notes? You got you, you were talking about a catalog, talking about um a compute persistence, right? So that, so that right. can be your one of the clouds and and then also I guess some storage layer, your database, you're talking about pipeline orchestration, right? What what are the other ones that you should go? Because we all know it shouldn't just be arguments that we shouldn't be one. Yeah, it probably shouldn't be fifty. So, what yep. are the different buckets? Those, those things that we should be considering. So, so I'll just I'll give you this is my opinion. I've been pretty vocal yeah. about this stuff, right? Like, because like I spent a lot of time just trying to help people build out their next gen data engineering ecosystems, right? And um, so there's you know um, call it seven of these things. Catalog is one, as you mentioned. The persistence in, or in the storage and the compute is another. And the, the you're probably, gonna, if you're doing something modern and, and relatively new, like if you're doing Greenfield, like you're probably going to, you know, do it on a cloud vendor, right? Um, and then uh, the, the data pipelining is the third one. Lots of different ways to do that. When I was at Novartis, like I had thousands of Python pipelines, right? And I just need something to needed something to orchestrate it better and more consistently, right? I wasn't going to replace all these thousands of pipelines. I just needed to make sure that they were all behaving reasonably well so that we could maintain them. And um, so pipelining is the third one, right? And then, you know, uh, I, I believe, you know, data mastering, I think is is kind of a one. This is one we focus on at, at, at Tamer. Um, and then you have uh, data data governance, um, and, you know, privacy and policy. And I think there's two flavors of governance. One is a source-based governance kind of a thing. And the other is a consumption-based governance kind of component. And then um, at the other end of the spectrum, on the other side, you've got a, um, you know, a, a data consumption tool. So this is like the, 
you know, I, I think of it as publish, right? But it's kind of the place, the safe place where you put all of your clean, curated, well-governed data for people to go consume, you know? And that thing probably runs, if you're looking at a, you know, sort of a, a, a physical architecture, that thing probably runs on something that looks like a column store, right? Because you want lots of people to get at it really quickly. And I think one of the key things on the, the publish side is if you want that the data to be itself to be versioned, right? And so when any... When, when key elements of the data change, when you get a, a new column of data, um, a new record, or when one of the values changes in the, the tabular data set that you're consuming, that you've subscribed to, that you get a notice. Like, oh, you, know, can you can imagine being in a viz tool or a modeling tool downstream, and you get a notice that says, hey, there's a new set of records that are available for this data set that you were using last week. Do you want to add these, you know, records to your data set? Or there's a new column, there's a new field available. Um, would you like to add that to your analysis, right? Um, or there, there are new values. The values have changed inside of your system. And in order to do that, you have to have this like really well-versioned uh, collection of, uh, of the data. Um, and it gets not dissimilar to sort of versioning software and how it's built. And so, um, so these are kind of the big, oh, there's one more bucket, so which is like data, you know, uh, data feedback and usage, right? So, um, you know, the, the ability to see what people are, what data people are consuming, and also the ability for people that are consuming the data to feedback on the data. I kind of call this like JIRA for data, right? Like there should be something when you're in a, you know, any web app that's a data-driven web app that somebody's built for you, or you're in a uh, a Viz tool like Tableau or Click, um, or you're in a, um, a modeling tool, you're in SAS or the modern ones like Data Robot or whatever, that you can the end users can say, hey, there's something wrong with this data. Like it needs to change in some way, shape, or form. And so, yeah, this is so these are, for me. These are kind of the big buckets. Yeah. yeah so this I'm taking notes, right? So catalog one. Persistent mm -hmm. storage compute as a cloud vendor mm -hmm. with your pipeline, but it's going to have some orchestration. Right. Uh, data mastering. You talk about data right. governance, privacy policy. Talk about data consumption tools, which is like where is the actual governed clean data going to live? Right. Uh, and then finally, this data feedback and usage, right? So people right. are like the yes. for data. Yeah. Seven things. Okay. So I. Let me dig into this. I got and a couple. I've got like diagrams and blogs on, on my blog, right? It's like, right. you know, we're just talking so, about this shit endlessly. Yeah. So, first of all, I'm, su I'm surprised you didn't say, you didn't call out things like, e I mean, ETL or like DVT Whoa. and stuff like that. Are you putting that inside of the pipelining right now or where does yeah. that go in? So, 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 like ETL in my mind, like it's really, you know, extract, transform, load, like it's data pipelining. Right, okay. more broadly written, and, and again, ETL tools were like the old way to do it, right? And you know, now the more modern things are, you know, you, you look at like, you know, I, I'm a big fan of Fivetran. I think that system's great. Like, it's a replication system though. Like, it's built for purpose. And like, you know, like George, like you know, who's the founder, is a great guy and an ex, you know, life sciences guy like me. And like, he built a great replication system. It moves data from wherever it was to wherever it's going. It's like an E, the E and the the L, right? And then he always says, oh, and you also need to do a bunch of transformation stuff, right? And like a night logical thing to use for that is probably DBT, right? And we're like, yeah, that's great transformation. And like, we think of mastering as like, you know, a combination of a bunch of these things. And so, um, you know, and we, we love DBT. We think it's a great system, really, really useful in all kinds of ways. So, so like, but what I think this is the dynamic that's happening right now 
is like as everybody moves to the cloud, all the different pieces of the you know traditional data ecosystem are getting sort of the lines are getting redrawn, right? And so what was ETL before is now it's like, well, actually you take the T out of that and you can put it over on the side and you can do that differently. And you really focus and you've got another set of tooling that you used to do E and the L part and another, you know, uh, like, uh, you know, any pick, you know, any like the, like the five trans stuff. And then you've got an, a whole separate thing you used to do the T stuff. And each one of those is actually more best of breed at what it does. Um, and so like, but, but right now with the cloud and people moving their data over the center of gravity for the data over to the cloud, like all these lines are getting rewritten and the, the Gartner enforcer people, like their heads are spinning, right? Cause they're like, wait a minute, we defined this category 20 years ago and it looks like X, Y, and Z, and this is where the lines are. And you're like, and you're like guess what? You got to draw some new boxes, guys. Like, is right. it <laughs> Well, even Gartner is trying to trying to adjust now, right? They don't really have a choice, but like you know, they're they're starting to kill off some old quadrants and things like that. For example, the metadata management quadrant has recently been killed off, right? And that's going to get replaced by you know TBD, right? I'm sure they're going to announce some stuff, right? Yeah. Um, but you know, that's an interesting topic, though. Just to click on that is like this topic of metadata, and actually, mm -hmm. a few of your categories are a little sort of let's call it like metadata oriented, right? Like catalog, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, mastering has a metadata element to it. Uh, mm -hmm. Data governance, privacy. Uh, yeah. You mentioned Versioning. data consumption, sure. uh, but part of that is like versioning and things like that. That's kind of metadata yeah. oriented. Um, right. Yeah, it's interesting that you kind of split it, right? Is that going to so, stay split, or do you see that converging, or what do you think? So, so here's the thing. My thing about metadata is like metadata is like you know if you know data is like water, you know, like you know uh, metadata is like you know the information, like whether the water is good or bad, or like whether it's like. You know, like there's so much, it's sort of integral to everything. And so I have a really hard time taking metadata out and just doing it separately from one of these, other. like I, every component. So, so a good example. So my buddy Mihir, who is like, you know, the new sort of top dog data guy at Fidelity, um, he's doing this huge project on Snowflake right now. And um, he sort of goes to all, all the source vendors across all of Fidelity. He goes to them and he says, listen, here are the specs for what you need to give me in order for me to consider your thing sort of publishable into this next gen data catalog that they're building for all of Fidelity. And like the spec has like, and here's the metadata you have to deliver for me, right? From your source, right? Like you just, like, and then he takes that and he sort of got ways of getting that metadata sort of persisted through the entire sort of to the, to, to, to ultimately to into the consumption. So that you've got this, this metadata sort of comes along with the data and then it gets augmented as the data gets changed, as it get as the data gets transformed and manipulated. So like, you know, I view metadata as something that persists like through the entire, through the entire pipeline and at every stage in, a, in, in the pipeline and in, the, in the, the life of the data from source to, to consumption, like it's getting enriched and enhanced and maintained. You're getting more and more metadata because you're doing stuff to it. Um, so, so again, I just view metadata as like an integral part of everything. And all the endpoints need to have these methods, just like Mihir sort of said to his source owners, he's like, hey, you got to give me this metadata in order for me to consume this thing. Otherwise, like, don't work. This is a very important key thing you just said. I, if data is like water, metadata is like the information if that water is good or bad. Yeah. So it's integrated. It's part of everything. That's why I have a hard time of taking metadata yeah. out. I, that, that's, right. that, that's a great insight,
I want to in, in the in the in the like the the information about it's good or bad is like subjective, right? You're like, well, like, am I using this water? It's just like, what am I am I using the water to drink? I mean, am I going to drink it? Like, or am I using it? it, it that's why you, that's why the the metadata needs the context, needs the knowledge right. about that context. That's right. Yeah, you know, I, yeah. Am, I, am I using the, are you using the water to flush the toilet? No, Tim and I always talk about we need to go from this world of data first to knowledge first, and we yeah. call knowledge first is hey context is 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 first mm -hmm. people is first because hey who is who is the user who's consuming that right relationships are first right how is that water going to feed to this other thing so it may not so you know I, I, like th there's a key point there like this idea like people being important you know I, I started I started studying AI back in the 1980s with this guy Marvin Minsky and. Like Marvin taught me these two things. Like, you know, the first thing was, you know, no algorithm is useful without enough great data, you know? And, um, you know, the second thing was, it's always about people and the machine working together, humans and the machine working together. And it was sort of classic Marvin stuff, right? But, but it's so true, right? Like, you know, and it's especially true in these next-gen data ecosystems. And the success of Snowflake really validates this, right? Like when, you know, Thierry and Marcin and, and Benoit, when they started Snowflake, and Mike and I, you know, we've always hung out with those guys because they're just sy database systems guys. And like they, um, you know, they were like, listen, we are going to make this all about collaboration. Like Snowflake is going to be all about better data collaboration. And it's kind of like that. You just log in. You can share tables the same way you share Google Docs, right? It's amazing. It's really powerful. And I, I think that, you know, part of the reason why Snowflake is so valuable now and, and is getting such uptick is that, you know, these collaboration features are what were, were a key part of what was missing in the traditional data ecosystem. So I have, I, by the way, you have an amazing background working with all these really cool people. I mean, saying that you, when we work with Mike Stonebreaker, <laughs> knowing Marvin Minsky, like, man, I, I wish I can be a fly on the wall in those conversations. <laughs> I, I want to I go uh, continue on one part. We, we, we started out saying we do one thing really well. And I've had conversations with other, with other customers, prospects, even vendors who say, actually, if I do a, a lot kind of shitty so-so it's not bad because i i mean i i have that one tool or where i can yeah. come, get to value very very quickly so i i mean i don't want to name names there but there's tool there's systems out there that yeah we do some bi we do some etl and we do some some data storage and it's like this is your one-stop shop to actually very quickly hit the ground running instead of getting all these things together now i could argue that we're gonna make the arguments that they will outgrow that right they need a more powerful thing but also you can imagine that if, if I'm not a, a very sophisticated data company um, and I just need to get some stuff quickly, like maybe that's what I need. I don't, I, I just need to have a lot of so-so stuff on everything and that's not bad. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, like, again, what's good enough, right? Like, and so like in some of these, if, you, if the, if the vendor is clear, if the, whoever built the tool is like transparent about exactly what it is and what it does and how it behaves, right. And this is one of the biggest problems we've got in data is like the vendors, especially the smaller ones, are just not, you know, clear enough about what their stuff does. Like it all sounds the same, you know, and, you know, from the customer's perspective. And, um, you know, I know I was there. I was listening. Like I just turned off the signal from all the marketing organizations and all the, you know, data vendors because I'm like, yeah, I, the only thing I listened to is like what their customers had done and what they would advocate for. And or let's say, let me try it and then you use it. Like then I could tell you what it was good at and what it wasn't good at. And so, um, you know, the, the, the noise 
um, you know, in, in that's in the ecosystem is the most difficult thing. And using the system and is one of the benefits, I think, of the cloud vendors is like you don't have to, you know, go out and load, you know, trust some, you know, benchmark that Oracle publishes, uh, you know, um, about, you know, whether their, you know, uh, system is doing something or not. Like you can just go use Google Bigtable and you can run your own tests and with your own data and see see what it does or doesn't do. And there isn't some big license standing in between you and doing that. It's just consumption based, right? You want to go and test it out, you go do it. And so I, I think that it's got to be more about what the technology actually does. And in many cases, like, you know, you go and use it, like it may be good enough, right? Like they may have not done, you know, parts of the thing that well, but it may be good enough for you. Um, and uh, that, that is a, uh, I mean, look at like, again, database system is a good example, right? Like you look at in Oracle in the early nineties, when they came out with materialized views, like it was in response to the emergence of, of data warehouse appliances, you know, the early data warehouse appliances, they were like, shit, like these read oriented workloads are going to kill us if we don't do something. So they created materialized views. And then for like a decade, like materialized views were good enough you know, for, for most people. And then when we came along with, with big, with, uh, you know, uh, Vertica, we would go in and like our customers were running these huge materialized views on these massive million dollar Oracle boxes. We would come in with, uh, you know, a four node cluster running Vertica. We'd load the same data and the queries that were running on their massive million dollar Oracle box were taking 24 hours to complete. We would run the same queries and they would complete in less than five minutes. And the customer was like, I don't believe this. There's no way this isn't possible. We're like, well, if you look under the covers at what Oracle has you doing inside of their system is they're, they're taking the data that comes into the row store. They're copying it into you know additional versions of this in these materialized views. And so you're like multiplying the size of the data, not by like five or 10, like a hundred times, right? In order to get this, you know, some better performance. And the way the data is represented on disk is still in a column store. So you're never going to get the query performance. When you put the data into columns, you compress the crap out of it and you can query optimize these things. Like it's just so much better. And, you know, and it just, and now we kind of take it for granted, right? Because the design pattern has been proved out, but Oracle sold a lot of that materialized view stuff to a lot of people for a long time. And now even, you know, like I, I won't go off on, on Oracle again, but you know, now what they're selling you with Exadata is like, oh yeah, we're going to have you copy the data a million times and we're going to sell you all the hardware you're going to need to run all those copies and it's just the hardware is going to get more expensive and uh, it's just it's just craziness, right? So so I, I guess the risk is like when you buy into one vendor's hubris, like if that vendor's behaving badly, you can really get screwed, you know? And like I, I think this ecosystem, these open ecosystems, that's one of the reasons why people like open source stuff in general, right? It kind of helps to keep the vendors a little bit honest. Yeah. yeah. Lock-in is a real thing to, to be worried about, right? Terrifying. Uh, and so, uh, you know, one last topic here before we start to kind of wrap things up is uh, you mentioned about data ops and how that's having a big influence on things. Yeah. Um, curious, you know, uh, how do you see, you know, what do you, what do you, how do you define data ops? Because it's interesting to kind of, you know, hear how different people approach that. And then how do you see it reshaping things, whether technology or, you know, how we work? Yeah, I think it's, you know, for me, it really is this sort of very direct reference to DevOps. And, you know, if DevOps is about build, testing and releasing, 
uh, software uh, continuously and, um, you know, uh, being able to build high quality software very, very quickly. Um, you know, data ops is really about being able to build, test and release data, um, you know, very, very quickly at a very high level of quality. And so, um, you know, those seven sort of components are kind of how I think about, you know, the, the components of a modern data ops ecosystem. There's lots of ways you can draw the boxes, you know, um, but ultimately you kind of have to, you know, do the same stuff, right? You got you to you figure out where the data is coming from. You know, you got to figure out who wants to consume it and how they want to consume it. And then you got to figure out how to get the data from where it's where, it, you know, it's, it's being published, you know, or created all the way over to where it's being consumed in the form in which it, it, the consumers want it. So, like, you know, again, you know, maybe I'm just sort of, you know, curmudgeonly about this stuff. I mean, you've done it so many times. Like, it's the same basic stuff you have to do over and over again. Um, and in some ways, it's like the, the latest sort of move of data to the cloud is like, you know, we did this once in the 90s with data warehouses, you know, and then in the 2000s, we started doing it again with data lakes, right? And now we're moving the data again, you know, on the cloud. And, you know, the, the part of the ecosystem that almost always remains less developed and less uh, sophisticated is that that consumption side, that published side, because what usually happens like people have enough money, they're going to get started and they start with the sources and then they start moving over towards the, and they kind of run out of money in infrastructure and, and, and commitment, right? Before they get all the data over into this clean, you know, curated thing. And um, I, I think the role model for data ops now are the big internet companies, you know, they, they've had to do this with structured data, you know, Google, you know, uh, uh, knowledge graph is, is kind of my favorite example where, you know, like now in, you know, when you do a search in Google and you search for JJ Abrams, who is like, you know, my favorite, like, I love that guy. He's unbelievable. Right. I mean, that first Star Trek movie was, you know, mind blowing. So good. And like, you know, but, but like when Google, when you search for JJ Abrams, now you, you don't, you don't just get a list of links. You get a, uh, info box, you know, on the right hand side. And that info box is highly curated out of Google knowledge graph. And it tells you everything you want to know about JJ and his wife, Katie and great kids and all that, and all the movies they've made. Uh, it's like, you know, and, and at the very bottom of that box is this little button that says send feedback. You could click on that button and it lights up every data element in the info box. And you click on the one that you think is wrong or is good or is bad. And then it lets you provide feedback to the Google Knowledge Graph curation team on that thing. So powerful, like that bi-directional flow of feedback on the quality of data in a very distributed way. Again, that's like that's the human and the machine working together, right? And, and so I think those are the models for like what a modern data ops ecosystem looks looks like, right? They have this capability to build, test, and release data very, very quickly and very high level of quality. And they're sort of bi-directional in the flow of feedback on the data itself. Yeah. I love that perspective. And it's all about, you know, when we do this well, we're going to be more productive. We're going to have higher quality systems. We're going to have more leverage. Data keeps getting bigger and more complicated. We're going to get more leverage. So, I mean, this is exciting. Yeah, you know, one other you know, like fun example with this, like uh, that I think is amazing, is that ultimately, you know, at Team we do a lot of data mastering stuff, and ultimately, you want to really control data quality at the point of data creation. So a lot of these data quality problems start in operational systems where somebody's got a a bunch of 
fields on a screen and they're gonna like fat finger a bunch of stuff in, right? And it's amazing, like when you're working inside of a modern enterprise today, like there's like very little auto-suggest and auto-fill, right? You go out into the modern internet, like I can't imagine using an e-commerce system or whatever without like being auto-recommended a list of, you know, things that match the company name I'm trying to type in or the person name I'm trying to type in, right? And then when you select one, it auto-fills all the fields, right? Because it's essentially like it kind of knows already what you're trying to, to, to enter and it's going to save you the time. It's going to be much easier. And it, it's a massive improvement in the quality of the data. But you go into the average enterprise, none of that happens. Right. You go into the supplier entry screen for SAP and you're fat fingering yet another, you know, duplicate of the same supplier over and over and over again. And we just know this because we see everybody on uh, the data under the covers. Like when we did this for GE way back in the day, like, you know, they thought they had two and a half million suppliers. They only had a million and a half globally. And GE thought they were better at supply chain management than anybody in the world. They were off by the number of suppliers they had by like more than a million. I can say this stuff now because like GE is kind of a bunch of different <laughs> things. But, like, but this is the reality. It's like we're really not very good at this kind of like modern data engineering stuff. And users now expect it. Like the average person that works in a big company and doesn't have this stuff when they come into work, they go home and they have all of these tools, right? We just have to do inside of big companies kind of what – people are used to getting when they use modern internet apps um, at home. Oh man, this is an amazing conversation and I'm taking a bunch of notes. We'll summarize in a second. I mean, Andy, we got to do this again. I actually, I would love yeah. to just go fly to Boston and hang out with you and keep chatting about this stuff. Like, the, this. More, the more the merrier. Like I awesome. love you guys, right? Love you guys. All right. Well, let's, let's get into our lightning round uh, session. When I told you we don't have lightning round questions when we started this conversation. Now we have many, so I'll kick it off. Um, Will an open interoperability standard emerge for data ops tools? Yes or no? Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna say no. Oh. I think yeah, because I think that they'll like people will figure out patterns that work, but I don't think they'll be standards. I don't think standards are as useful. Yeah, interesting. You know, I have to say that I actually uh, had a conversation yesterday with uh, Bob Muglia, and I was looking at some of his talks, and he is very hard on we need standards for metadata and stuff like that so it's going to be very interesting what's going to happen here and yeah. I, I mean it's a concern right the the famous xkcd right you got 14 standards now we got 15 standards and so forth right so, right yeah we're just yeah. adding to the problem right but but there's opportunity there um yeah. second second question um you know we we we've, we've we it was all about the sequel and then it was all about the no sequel and now it's all about the sequel again is sequel going to stay the supreme ruler here is it is it here to stay as as king king of the hill Absolutely, because like it, it, you know, and I'll, I'll tell why, right? Like you know, uh, the um, SQL is just a declarative language, and if we want lots of people to have access to data, we have to put a declarative language on top of these systems, right? Developers are going to like things like JSON uh, always; it's going to be much better and easier for them. But if we want people to get access to the data, we need a declarative language for them to access the stuff. And so, you know, I I believe SQL is here to stay. And uh, can I tell one anecdote? Oh, uh, so we, I was on the board of this company um, called Cloudin. It was one of the CouchDB companies. And we're sitting, these are like the, the NoSQL guys, right? Like they're so adamant about this. And like we're sitting in a board meeting and they're like, blah, 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 blah. And like, you know, I don't kind of pay attention, right? I hate these meetings. But like the, the, uh, 
you know, the, the, the head of, of the, the company, the CTO was, was saying, you know, we've been talking to the Mongo people, which is like, okay, wait a minute, that's weird. Like they were supposed to be the biggest competitor. And like, we've, we've decided we want to do a declarative language on top because like all of our customers want and need something, a way to get data out of, you know, both Mongo and Couch. And we've decided that we're going to, you know, sort of give them a version of SQL. And I was like, are you freaking kidding me? Like, you guys have been talking about this NoSQL stuff for 10 years, right? And now you're saying it's not NoSQL. And then, they, of course, they came up with us, like, oh, it's not NoSQL. It's NewSQL. And like, da, da, da. like, come on, right? Like, it's not SQL. SQL's not bad. It's great, you know? Even my partner, Stonebreaker, right? He had a whole different standard, declarative language standard in the early days. And he lost wow. because the IBM guys, you know, picked SQL along there. It was horrible. Yeah, Quell, right, exactly. Yeah, wow. right. Yeah, yeah, everybody history. I'm a I'm a big history computer science and I, I love yeah. All right, I got a next question. You mentioned metadata is in everything. Are mm. semantics in everything? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's kind of a you know interesting semantic question. What are semantics? Um <laughs> but <laughs> you can keep it as that and that can be a topic for a follow-up. Yeah, Semant semantics are everywhere. Yes. Like big, big time believer. Yeah. Nice. All right. Final lightning round question for you. Will monoliths make a comeback? Um, I think that monoliths, the new monolith might be best of breed sort of um, being masked as a monolith. Like I can, I can imagine uh, companies being really good at pulling together a collection of uh, capabilities that are the best of breed, packaging them so they look like a monolith. And, and my favorite example of this is essentially like Snowflake and Databricks are kind of like this, right? Like you don't buy persistence and storage from Snowflake and Databricks. Like they're just selling through the, you know, the, the persistence and compute. Um, and so like what they've really done for you is they've kind of like, you know, figured out how to make all the persistence and storage work and make it more accessible in the Databricks case in context of being a data scientist or in Snowflake being a real data engineer. So that's a fascinating concept there. The idea that, uh, and I think I agree with you that like Databricks yeah. and Snowflake are kind of a repackaging that, you know, have, have created huge value in the process, but it's kind of yeah. a repackaging. That's interesting. Totally. totally. Yeah. All right. So it's our, our, our TTT. Tim Ooh. takes it away with takeaways. You go first, Tim, and I'll follow. Yeah, sure. So tons of good conversation today. I'll mention two things. One is the stack that you identified, this sort of these buckets, right? The catalog, the persistent storage or compute layer, uh, the pipeline layer, data mastering, data governance slash privacy, data consumption tools, and then data feedback and usage. Uh, and thinking of that as a slightly different way, right? Everybody's got their, their modern data stack or their thing that they look at. I, I think this is a very interesting lens on all of this. Um, and then also data ops, right? Where it's coming from, who's going to consume it, um, you know, creating a more quality, uh, repeatable, iterative approach to data, not just software, uh, and, and making it so we can do this, uh, this stuff well over and over and over again. So um, some, some, some good definitions and some good concepts here. And uh, Juan, what about you? Well, I'll start off. Monoliths are dead. That's what you started off with, right? <laughs> you don't meet happy uh, Palantir customers or stuff like that, right? Yeah, yeah you'll they, you'll pay tens of millions of dollars. It'll, it'll start great, but then it'll tail off. Um, 
and in, in, in reality, there is no vendor, no products who are complete enough. So by definition, they are incomplete and no vendor will have it all. So we need to have this best of breed. Um, and this is interesting about we should just do that one thing very, very well, kind of stick in our swim lane. But hey, if somebody, if another vendor says we can do more, well, just be honest about what's good enough, right? People can make that understand how to make that decision. I love this analogy of data is the water, metadata is like information about about that water, which can be subjective too, but you understand the context around that stuff. And that's why metadata is all over the place. Declarative languages matter. Another very interesting thing that I want to go dig into later is, is this bi-directional feedback. And this has evolved into metadata and the data ops, right? You want that's what truly the human and the machines working together means. It's like here's something that the machine generated, the human should be able to go provide that and keep that. And right. And this is the model for the modern data ops. And then another thing you just said is when it comes to data quality, it's at the source and everywhere as consumers on the web, us, as normal people, we go buy things. It's auto suggest everywhere. Why the heck don't we do this for enterprise software? Like, I mean, we can avoid so much problems around if we just had auto suggest, right? So this, this is a very interesting thing to go think about. Um, so that's our summary of our discussion here. <laughs> So throw it back to you, Andy, two questions. What's your advice about data, about life or whatever? And second, who should we invite next on the podcast? Yeah. So, um, you know, I, you know, in terms of advice, you know, I, I think that the best thing to do when you're, you know, building any modern data, you know, ecosystem is to start with the questions, start with the consumption of the data. Uh, and work back from the questions that people have and that they need answered, and especially the ones that are really valuable to them. And, um, you know, you will build the infrastructure to suit um, the questions that they have. And I think the, you know, it's the opposite of where most people start. Most people start with the source. And I think um, we need to change the design point, you know, for our data engineering ecosystems to starting with the consumption. Um, in terms of who to have next, so I can't believe I'm saying this, uh, but I'm going to. Like, I think you guys should have Stonebreaker on. Like, I, it would be great. I'd be happy to, you know, get him lined up. It, you know, he. Um, the, the the beauty about Mike is like he's never, you know, uh, agreeable. Like, he's always going to take the opposite opinion. <laughs> so I think I think it would be really funny to have you guys, you know, take him on for an hour and see what That'd you get awesome. out. Yeah, let, yeah let, cool. let, let's do this. I'll follow up with yeah. you. I'd love to have Michael the Stonebreaker uh, on the podcast. That is awesome. Cool. Andy, this has been a pleasure. Uh, we have so much stuff to go talk about next time. Uh, we're going to go do this again. And at least I'm going to, next time I'm in Boston, I'll, we'll, we'll meet up for sure. And, and I like to cook. I'll go to your kitchen and make use of it. <laughs> well, we'll definitely have somebody cook the meal because I can. <laughs> Thank you guys, Tim, Juan. Great this to see you guys. Is catalog really and cocktails. <laughs>